Welcome to Logically Speaking, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges in cybersecurity with the top experts in their field. You're going to learn how to keep your data safe, your operations sound, and your business ready for whatever comes next. This is Logically Speaking. Today we have the incredible uh, pleasure of, of being able to speak to Max Alexander. And uh, Max is uh, currently a Vice President of Cyber and Technology Emerging Threats Research uh, at J.P. Morgan Chase, where um, he's responsible for educating the firm and its clients on best practices when it comes to mitigating cyber threats, attacks. Prior to joining the firm in 2019, Max was the lead of the uh, Digital Forensics and Insider Threat Team at the Pentagon. He's also a director of uh, and a professor of digital forensics at the University of Maryland Global Campus, where he trains and mentors the future forensic investigators. And I'm very excited to, to talk to Max today. Comes with, Max, I got to be honest, when I read all of the degrees you had, I was a little intimidated. Uh, that, that, that's a, I wouldn't even go into that. And, and you know, we, we can... We can talk about that later. I, I have a, I would say, a mental illness where I'm addicted to going to college. It could be a good or a bad thing. So uh, I do consider myself a lifelong learner. <laughs> That's fantastic. I mean, it should, I was going to ask you, should I call you Dr. Alexander? No, no right? my name is Max. <laughs> so just, just call me Max. And, and that's, right. that, that's fine. So Max, you know, to start things off, if you could... Um, just share how you got into cybersecurity and a little bit more about your experience, more from like, you know, from a tactical sense, like how did you get into cyber? Was it something you were always interested in or did you kind of just stumble into it? Well, from a tactical sense, it was very tactical. And yes, I did. I stumbled into it. So, uh, you know, we'll start back pre 9-11. Obviously, I was in the military. If you can't tell by the haircut, it still has still a part of me. Um, yeah, so I, I joined, I joined the military before 9-11. I actually joined the National Guard, kind of like uh, most people who join the National Guard. You used to see the, the commercials on TV of, you know, join the Guard, serve your country, but it also pays for, for college. And, you know, I was, uh, my, my family, we weren't poor, but we weren't rich either. We grew up in Kentucky and I went, okay, well, this makes sense. I've got, I've got to, got to find a way to pay for college. Let's join the National Guard. A lot of my close friends had joined the Guard. So, uh, also kind of wanted to do something hard. So I'm like, well, let me enlist in the, the Kentucky National Guard 20 Special Forces Group. So uh, yeah, I did that. Went through all of the training and then uh, the 9-11 happened and found myself overseas uh, right at the beginning of, of the uh, Afghan invasion. And, you know, I was, I was young then. I was just, just had graduated high school, finished training for about a year and a half. So I was a little over 21, 22 years old at the kickoff of the war. And uh, what we were doing in the war was obviously we were going and finding a lot of terrorist related individuals and we were getting a lot of uh, digital media, computers and cell phones and, and things of that nature. And, and we were collecting those things up and then they kind of turned to me and like, well, you're the youngest person on the team. You should know all there is to know about digital devices and cell phones and computers. I'm like, I'm, I, I'm from Kentucky. I don't own a cell phone. I, I, I just, you know, I think I had just gotten a home computer when we left, you know, early 2000s. Like, I don't know anything about this. So, I, you know, I learned when I, when I was overseas, I actually was fortunate enough. I, I had linked up with some folks over at the National Security Agency. We, you know, they, the kind of trial by fire at that time. When I got back, I'm like, well, you need to, you know, if we're going to keep doing this for, you know, the foreseeable future, you've got to, you've got to train me on, on what it is you want me to do. So I had convinced them to send me to a lot of schools and, and you know, a lot of, some of those were colleges and universities, but some of it was like uh, the Defense Cybercrime Training Center. I got to do a lot of training there and was like uh, probably one of the first forensic investigators in, in the DOD. So I, it was a really cool experience, but I, I am the accidental cyber person. I was, it was not purposeful. It was not something like I, yes, let's go into cyber. So kind of, kind of a long story there. That, that, that's interesting, you know, that, that you would be viewed as the young person who's tech savvy. So you had to know this stuff. That, right. that, 
that's interesting. So um, let, I want to talk a little bit about your forensic investigating background. Mm -hmm. uh, you're, you're in financial services now. Right. Traditionally, and, and, and I've been in cyber for 25 years, and, and I've seen that traditionally financial services tends to be a leader in security since, mm -hmm. you know, the times of, you know, the wild, wild west. They, they knew how to protect their assets. And so that's, to me, it's always been like that mindset that financial services is a leader. But in your experience, are there industries that need to invest further in cybersecurity? In other words, what industries outside of your own do you see need additional investment in cybersecurity? And, and investment, you know, that that's kind of an interesting word because we can invest in a lot of things. We can invest in people, process, and technology. So what industries need more investment? Well, all of them. Uh, what industries need the most or more investment out of, out of things that we, we've seen? Um, you know, you can read the news. Everybody reads the news. So I, I, I talk to a lot of folks around the globe every day. And it's kind of one of the questions that I get is, you know, how much money should I be investing? Where should I invest? What should I invest in? And, and I'll, I'll caveat this whole thing. And, and kind of one of my, my sayings, if you ever heard me talk, is that you can build your castle's walls out of gold. It does not necessarily make it more secure. It just makes it more expensive. So when we talk about investing in things, okay, we have to do it smartly and all of the investments that that we should make tend to go should go back to risk every organization should have some type of risk assessment they should identify what they're vulnerable to what risk they might have what threat actors may be posed against them and then let's start looking at the controls that we already have in place and if the controls aren't mitigating those risks down to that acceptable level, then okay, maybe we need to invest more in certain areas. Most people, most organizations don't know what risk they face. They don't have a good risk assessment. So when they go about doing a lot of this, they do it blindly. And they're like, well, let me just go buy the latest and greatest. And not to say that the latest and greatest thing isn't useful. You just have to figure out where this latest and greatest thing fits in. Um, but to, to more specifically answer your question, you know, what industry should we invest in or what industry should 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 look at this more specifically? Well, uh, and, and I'll say critical infrastructure, and that's a very broad and nebulous term, because when we look at critical infrastructure across the, the spectrum of the U.S., there are 16 critical infrastructure sectors, 80, 90 percent of it's owned by private industry and pretty much everything under the sun is critical infrastructure when you look at the definitions. So to be even more specific to that, when I think of critical infrastructure, I'm thinking of, well, the things that make us function and live as a society, the the energy, the um, electricity, the the water, the, those things, the, the, the life health safety things. And oftentimes we see a lot of those things being hacked or hit. I, I was just reading the news the other day. We saw China might be targeting power companies around military bases. And historically, a lot of these, these, um, these critical infrastructure or electrical power sectors, they have historically been underfunded. The, a lot of these could be government-owned, government partnerships, and, and, and a lot of the infrastructure they're using is old. Um, and, and to completely revamp a lot of that is, is a major, major investment, a major undertaking. And oftentimes, too, we, we often see these, these critical infrastructure things hooked up to the open Internet. There's, there's actually search engines showed on HD. You can start Googling uh, critical infrastructure appliances that may be out there and then start searching for vulnerabilities. So I, I would say if I, if I were any organization, particularly that sector, I, I would definitely look at maybe investing more, uh, trying to figure out how to to modernize, how to maybe more secure our our infrastructure. Yeah, no, uh, it's a key point, right? The critical infrastructure tends to be the the one using the legacy systems, uh, the set it and forget it mindset for years and years and years. And you know, I've my teams have found. Uh, servers that haven't been rebooted in years or patched because 
they're just afraid of bringing those systems down that they don't come back up. So, you know, you, you, you bring a really good point. Um, can you speak to a little bit about the, you know, when, when a organization, a company gets breached, um, the impact typically is viewed as downtime and then on a cursory level, maybe reputational damage. Mm-hmm. But can you speak to some of the uh, unknown impacts of these breaches yeah. that are happening and, and maybe educate some of our listeners that it, they don't have to be a financial institution to have some of these countermeasures. And, and as you mentioned, which is a great practice, uh, you know, identifying and quantifying the risk so that with an assessment so that you can then make sure that you're uh, appropriating the right amount of budget and funds in the areas that are going to have the best amount of impact to reducing that risk. But but can you speak to the the unknown impacts uh, of being breached? Yeah, and, and and I think those unknown impacts too, when, when it goes back to um, identifying things and looking at, at what might affect your organization, it's a good good marketing tool for cyber insurance um, because oftentimes with with risk we can accept it we can mitigate it we can ignore it we can transfer it oftentimes we see a lot of companies we're going we're going to transfer that risk uh, to cyber insurers but we we've seen the the cost of cyber insurance it just skyrockets and it is because a lot of these unknown risks that organizations face so obviously when we're hit with any type of cyber attack we're down I think the average time an organization is down from a ransomware attack is about seven to nine business days. And keep in mind that that's an average. Um, so that, you know, if you're doing really good and you have your ducks in a row, you've got good backups, you've tested them, you, you might be down for a matter of minutes, hours. If, uh, we, we see worst case scenarios, it could be a period of months. So obviously downtime is, is probably your, your, your number one threat. But then there's also some residuals in that. Well, if if an organization gets hit and they go down and they're down for a period of weeks, well, maybe I need to go find a new organization to do business with. So now I'm going to maybe lose some customers I have to competitors um, because they haven't had a cyber attack or it's just easier for for my customers to to go to a business that's open. Um, So there is some reputational damage there as well as, as, as a loss of customer base. Uh, in addition to that, intellectual property. Okay, so if I'm I'm working on something, a lot of these ransomware attacks, um, you know, they're not just ransoming my data. They're now taking and holding a hostage, threatening to put it on the dark web. Uh, so if I'm Kentucky Fried Chicken and I've got the, the secret to the 11 herbs and spices and that's what makes my business my business and someone goes and steals that, well, th- then, you know, that, that could really put me in a jam. And, and now we see some other fried chicken restaurant come up and, and undercut me. And, and maybe they have 12 herbs and spices now because they're, they're better. They know my secret. Um, so we oftentimes see, you know, risk of that, particularly during COVID. We actually saw a lot of attacks against healthcare entities that were investigating the COVID vaccine. Uh, and, and I think we saw a particular nation state try and, and, and create their own COVID vaccine based on, on some of the data that, that was stolen. So um, a, a lot of these, you know, are very, you know, the, 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 like an iceberg. I think there was some, some company out there that made a iceberg graphic of, of the known knowns and then the unknown unknowns were actually deep down below the surface and, and vastly outnumbered the known knowns. So um when when looking at trying to protect your business, it's those things under under the the wave tops that that really could could hem you up and bite you. Plus the cost of of uh, data breach notification, legal, uh, all of those things come into play. So now we're having to to buy a lot of uh, uh, services for our clients and customers because their data is exposed. Where we could be exposed to lawsuits, so we have to figure that in. Outside counsel, we now have to start paying for those things. So. A lot of a lot of expenses that organizations don't necessarily think of. No, those are really great points. You know, you mentioned cyber insurance, and um, I had a couple of questions around that that I wanted to to touch on because I think that's an interesting topic. I, I've I've spoken to some clients recently that have told me that their cyber insurance premiums are going up. I mean, you mm-hmm. mentioned it. There's it's exponentially two, three, four times the amount. Um, I'm also finding that the cyber insurers are mandating 
just some baseline, especially with some of our, our listeners in that mid-market, um, mandating certain countermeasures like multi-factor authentication, some type of endpoint protection and ongoing monitoring and, and, and retention of logs, incident response and disaster recovery plans. These are things that are if you had the ability to nail it down to two or three things uh, that you think would allow um, the listeners to keep their premiums, what would those things be? I think Microsoft did a study a couple of years ago, and they said if organizations implemented multi-factor authentication, it would reduce cyber attacks by, I think, somewhere around the 90% range. I, I don't know the, the, all of the, what, what they looked at or how they came up with that calculation, but uh, what we, we tend to look at is that hackers, they're, they're getting uh, passwords. And, and I just read a study the other day when it talked about critical infrastructure attacks and hackers were, were essentially using legitimate credentials, I think in over 75% of the attacks. So one knowing uh, that your your users are under attack, implementing that multi-factor authentication, but using strong multi-factor authentication, something like the tokens, instead of something like a SMS text password, that the, the tokens are much stronger than obviously the, the text because your phone can be you know, faked, forged, spooked. Um, that would be number one, but then also user monitoring. So if I, I know certain things about my users, they only log in maybe between the hours of nine to five, they log in from specific IP addresses. Um, having that monitoring capability, particularly on your administrators uh, and looking for deviations from the norm uh, would probably pay dividends uh, in a lot of the attacks that we're seeing. Of course, any type of monitoring that you're doing, um, having logs, knowing what to collect, uh, when to collect it. You know, out there, I think one of their sayings is to find evil, you have to know normal. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. You, you, you have to know what right looks like or you're never gonna find wrong. Um, so that, that's all part of a good cybersecurity program. Perfect. No, great, great, great points there, Max. Thank you. Uh, I want to shift a little bit and talk a little bit more about like uh, threat actor tactics, techniques, procedures, TTPs that that your team are seeing from threat actors. Not not specifics, but like what are you seeing from the threat actors and their TTPs and how it's changed over time? Yeah, and I'll speak from a perspective of a lot of the research I do um, just in, in the private world uh, from from a uh, uh, educational uh, institute perspective. A lot of what I'm seeing in, in that regard is that um, there there is a war going on right now between Russia and Ukraine, and we're actually seeing a lot of the tactics and techniques that are used in that wartime environment being now operationalized and used in a civilian context or the lines are being blurred now, there is not really a, a difference between what we're seeing in the war, everything's kind of commingled uh, together. Um, but we go back and, and, and I guess maybe at the start of, of the pandemic, we saw the rise of ransomware. And initially, the, the ransomware tactics and techniques were, well, let's just go in and, and hold the data hostage. And early on during the, the, the pandemic, we saw a lot of organizations for the first time have to exercise some resiliency in that my employees are no longer in the building. Uh, but in order to do that, a lot of them just had to go out and buy stuff overnight. Uh, virtual private networks, remote desktop protocols, and they stood them up almost immediately, did not test them, uh, did not implement security, and the initial TTP was, well, let's go after VPNs, let's go after RDP connections, and we saw that that was the like number one cause of ransomware attacks in organizations uh, at the early stages of the pandemic. Um, since then, the price of Bitcoin's fallen from 60,000, I think it's like 30,000 right now. 
Uh, we've seen a lot of folks no longer making these huge, massive ransom payments. I think the biggest one I saw during the height of it was like $70 million. Uh, $50 million was, was, I think, an average ransomware payment um, just a couple of years ago. Now we're seeing quite lower ransomware payments and, and uh, I, it's, it's more of, of the mindset of let's, let's just go out and get everyone. And I think, think now what we've seen too is that Log4j, um, going back a couple of years, that was a big vulnerability that was exploited heavily. I think OWASP rated that as their number one, number two vulnerability for a while. Um, and you know the patches had been out for that for for at least now a couple of years. People still don't patch for Log4j, but now we have something even worse. We've we've seen the threat actors now kind of pivot to this uh, um, move it vulnerability, and we've seen government organizations, private sectors. I think there are like 500 now private sector entities that have been hit with this move it vulnerability. Um, some of them still, some people still don't know about it. Um, some people uh, um, are now looking, you know, now just now looking to fix this. And this has been out since like the 25th of May. Um, but to circle back, I mean, completely answer your question. I, I think as a cyber person, you know, for the last decade, I've educated folks, hey, you need to really do a good job of taking care of your own organization, implementing those controls that we talked about earlier. Uh, where cyber folks, maybe we've fallen down over the last couple of years is that we've maybe neglected to say, oh, and by the way, uh, you have to look at your third parties uh, because third parties are now uh, big sources of vulnerability. And to circle back to how this relates to the Russian-Ukraine uh, crisis, when we go back to the first time of how Russia invaded uh, the Crimea region 2016, one of the things that we saw the, the threat actors do in that particular case was they said, well, let, let's do a study of that country and let's figure out some software that is kind of ubiquitous throughout Ukraine. And they actually found something uh, called MEDOC, and it's a financial accounting software. Pretty much everybody uses it. Uh, I think it's almost mandated by the government that, that everyone had to use MEDOC to report uh, finances and taxes. Well, Russia said, let's hack into that. And all of the updates that MeDoc is providing to its clients and customers, well, let's put some malware in that and let's start shutting down these critical infrastructure sectors like we talked about earlier, the power of the banks, the, all of that stuff. And, and, and we saw that that is exactly what happened. And that has been a TTP, I think we've seen since 2016. And there's been a... a number of, of attacks in, in that regard. I think solar winds, that's exactly how they, they use solar winds. But even before that, there was a, a, a company that they clean up your, your desktop software. It used to be known as Crap Cleaner. It's called CCleaner. Now, that, the same thing happened to that when they hacked into it, all of the updates and uh, was providing to its clients and customers that that was essentially uh, laced with, with malware. Um, so that the, the third party aspect, uh, the threat actors now using those and leveraging those third parties to get into your organization, I think that's a, a, an evolving technique that, that we have, have seen in that regard. And then just in the ransomware space, again, that has evolved where they're just not content with taking and holding your data hostage. We're actually seeing these folks now use more of an extortion technique. Uh, we're going to take your proprietary data or your personal uh, health information, your PII, and we're going to hold that hostage uh, and threaten to release that on the dark web if you don't make some type of payment. So I think uh, the attacks have, have, have evolved in that regard. Yeah, I know you brought up the interesting thing about ransom payments, and I'm, I'm interested in your opinion on whether or not collectively there would ever be a movement where organizations will stop paying the ransom and do other measures to recoup and to recover from a ransomware attack and stop kind of that money train that seems to be mm -hmm. persistent right because the more the more the uh the industry pays the hackers will continue right? yeah. it's 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 a money game for them um, but do you ever see that 
coming to fruition where they ban where we band together and say no more payments we're just going to recover in another way mm -hmm. or, or will this always be kind of where we you know where we kind of stand and, and continue to pay these ransoms that that will, will continue to impact industries yeah you know, I, I think for the most part, we still don't see a large group of uh, organizations making ransom payments, but you know the the quantity of them is so heavy and vast right now. Uh, even the the thirty, almost forty percent that are paying that the you know it does add up. Um, so it is a very lucrative business. Um, as far as being able to recover. You know, we I think we preach for a long time that you have to have good backups of your system. You have to have a business continuity plan. Uh, you have to have a disaster recovery plan. Uh, you have to test those and make sure they've worked. Uh, I've spoken to a lot of organizations that have been hit and they're like, oh yeah, we we have backups or we, we have a backup. And and then I'll I'll talk to them three or four months later and they're like, oh gosh, we, we've been hit with ransomware. We don't know what we're going to do. And I'm like, well, I thought you had backups. Oh yeah, well we've never tested, or the backup didn't work, or you know the the backup was only to a certain point in time, and the ransomware you know happened when we backed up the data. So if we just restore, we're we're restoring back right. to ransomware. Um, so I think not just having a plan, uh, you know, is, is good, but testing that plan, you have to put into some type of tabletop testing. You have to put in some type of of actually no crap, I'm going to make sure the backups work and, and, and we're going to test this may, maybe over a long weekend to see if this, this actually happens. Um, so, so I think, yeah, that, that's um, definitely needed. There's an old military expression, two is one and, and one is none. Um, so one backup's probably good, but 500 backups are, are better if you really want to be resilient. That may be an overkill. But you, you know, you definitely have to know when the threat actor got in your system and be able to restore to a known good point before that. So having these multiple iterations of backups uh, are definitely going to help your organization when when the time comes. And then knowing that your teams can restore from those backups when needed gives you the power to not have to negotiate with these these ransomware takers. Also, just encrypting your data. Uh, using these these basic cybersecurity protective measures, encrypt data at rest, uh, encrypt data at transit. That 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 would be very beneficial as well. Yeah, I wanted to. It's great points. Thanks for sharing it. I you know that's I love that 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 mindset of two is good, one is none. I I I, I that I'm, I wrote that down. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna reuse that. Maybe even put it on a T-shirt. But um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was third party. You mentioned third party vulnerabilities or risks, and and that seems to be, um, seems to be the threat vector that most people overlook in the mid market. They think about shoring up their defenses, but they don't think about the weakest link in their security as that vendor that uh, they've given VPN access or remote access to support some kind of software or application or system in their environment. Um, how have you seen companies do a good job of handling that third-party risk? Yeah. So for, for ages and ages, organizations have had third-party oversight. So when, when you get ready to do business with somebody, uh, you bring in a team of folks, maybe somebody from cyber, somebody from legal, somebody from pretty much every department who, who's going to have a say in this, and you go over uh, the contract, the service level agreements that you're going to have, what you expect that company to do for you. You may have, you may ask them certain cyber questions, and then you sign a contract, and, and then you largely forget about that until something bad happens. Um, and, and that's where more successful organizations, we see that, okay, we're not going to let this thing just kind of die on the vine or just wait for the, the relationship to deteriorate or for them to screw up. Uh, we have to at least annually go back and review, you know, is this is this contractor is it doing what we've asked it to do? Are they adhering to the terms of the contract? Uh, have we conducted an exercise with a drill with them in, in the case of, of something bad occurring? 
um, and, and asking those questions. When vulnerabilities come out like log4j or, or this uh, move it vulnerability, have we asked the vendor, what have you done to patch this? Or, I, I, also, do we know what data that we're sharing with them? So in, in the event that we think that there may be a compromise, do we know what information we may have that we've shared could potentially be at risk? So it's a sort of a whole of organization aspect, um, but it has to be something that's continuous and ongoing. It can't just be, well, let's one and done and, and then wait for, for the best to happen. No, it's a, it, it's a really great point because I, Last week was with a, a customer in, in Georgia, and it specifically, this came up, which was, have you put into practice your business continuity plan? Have you tested it? Have you gotten everybody in the room, tossed a scenario at them? And um, have you assessed on an annual basis your third parties? And 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 the CISO looked at me and, and he was like, no, we, we don't even know where to start. And, and that... And that's not a small organization, right. right? That's a fairly large, you know, several thousand employees, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue at risk. And um, and I think about that, and I think that what the point you made, which, which is really, really good, is that annual attestation uh-huh. is super important. But then practicing the business continuity, the incident response, uh, you mentioned previously about having those contacts with law enforcement or legal counsel, uh, forensic investigators. Those things, those relationships should never start when a ransomware has has actually happened, right? It should be established. You should have practiced it. You should have that muscle memory. Um, so, the really, really great points. I, I really appreciate that. I, I'd like to shift a little bit toward the insider threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and maybe uh, maybe share a little bit about your thoughts on uh, how companies can um, protect against the insider threat, right? You mentioned intellectual property. That seems to be uh, the number one kind of asset that gets compromised from the insider. But uh, maybe you can share a little bit about that and maybe what some of your thoughts on the, on how to mitigate that risk of that insider threat. Yeah, and, and it's on. Un- Uncomfortable for a lot of organizations to talk about because we don't like to think that somebody that we work with um, is potentially going to be that person that that takes our organization down that steals our data from us. And then looking at my government experience, my gut from my government background, I mean, you know, catching spies, the Robert Hansons, the the Edward Snowdens of the organizations. Um, you know, they were trusted with access to, to certain data, and then, you know, they essentially betrayed that trust, rightfully or wrongly. It's a political thing for, for some folks to look at. I don't want to delve into that, but, you know, organizationally, you, you do have to look at, okay, well, we've entrusted people with some very high levels of access, and then, and then they kind of walk away with that, that data, put that data out there, and, and we didn't want it. Those are the intentional insider threats, and those are, are things that everybody probably thinks about when we hear the term insider threat. There's also the unintentional insider threat, which is pretty much everybody in the organization uh, who might do something stupid uh, on the computer, uh, which IT folks, I think, were, were probably some of the worst offenders of doing stupid things, but uh, just anybody who gets a... Uh, a phishing email, the, that, that's still a large portion of cyber attacks that are out there, and it only takes one. Uh, and if your staff isn't trained on recognizing the latest and greatest phishing attacks, which we talk about things that are evolving, we now see blended attacks where you're getting emails that are directing you to pick up the phone and call the hackers. And, and talking to a person on the phone, they're again letting that guard down a little bit more, you might start divulging things that you necessarily wouldn't. So the unintentional insider can be just as dangerous as that intentional insider. Um, We have to go back and again, we have to look at certain policies. You know, what controls can I put in place? What, What policy controls can I put in place to one, maybe stave off some of this? So uh, could be maybe you're not going to bring thumb drives or removable media into the building. My my technical control might be that I'm going to monitor for the use of thumb drives. 
that I may, might have a disciplinary program attached around that. Uh, maybe even for our unintentional insiders, we do now see a lot of folks using uh, these these third party services to conduct phishing attacks on on their organizations. Kevin Mitnick, great guy, uh, just lost him a couple weeks ago. Uh, he had a great company out there that was doing these these phishing attacks, and uh, we we see a lot of use and a lot of value in that. And that we're training your your organizations. A lot of the folks I talk to now, they're kind of paranoid, like, oh gosh, is this going to be a phishing test that my IT team is doing? And and yeah, I, I, I'm glad to see people are are now a little scared about that. We do see some disciplinary programs coming up through a lot of organizations. Maybe the the first time that you click on a phishing email, uh, and 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 it's one of these tests that are coming from one of these third party companies that that you're seeing a uh, uh, maybe you're you get a little education training and support coming your way like okay hey you failed the phishing test let's let's educate you maybe the second time you do it your manager provides you some education training and support and maybe the third or fourth time you do this it may or may not be a resume generating event but hr gets involved and they're figuring out hey why why are you keep clicking these phishing emails are you doing this on purpose or are you just not taking to the training what's going on um, but again there there has to be a uh, all of the controls put in place, the policy, the technical, uh, we have to be able to, to monitor and have some type of metric. I think Jack Welch said something, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Uh, I know in the business world that may cause some consternation with some folks, but I think in the IT world, it's definitely good as a science background. I want to have some, some measurements on what my network and my employees are doing. So if I, I start out doing my phishing test and we've got 50, 70% click rate and and now I've got my folks trained in paranoid and we're down in the single digits. I think, you know, I'm, I'm it's not perfect, but I'm doing better and, and we're not having as many attacks. And then I can focus maybe some more of my effort on 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 triaging some of these these phishing things that might get through and just just allows me to better focus my efforts. Probably a longer answer than you wanted. But no, no, you get you gave some great, you know, some great uh, topics here like. You know, the policy and the controls are super important. I think the education is key as well. But one of the things that I've seen is is creating this culture where questioning is okay. What I mean by that is um, we've gotten, you know, we've seen uh, internally an increase in kind of these uh, SMS phishing, you know, the smishing. Uh, where someone will get a text from our CEO saying, hey, this is me uh, with a new cell phone. I need you to respond immediately. Yeah. And and instead of simply responding, we developed this culture of, hmm, that sounds odd. Let me question it. I know his real cell number. And this actually happened to me uh, two weekends ago. Another one that happened was on the last day of the, of the month, we got um, uh, to an email alias, uh, a file that said signed PO for X hundred thousands of dollars. And, um, you know, I immediately notified the sales organization said, do not click on that. Right. That's, that that's it. But I knew that they were questioning. And then when I contacted it, yes, yeah, several people already notified us. It's that a culture of question, right? Yeah. Don't trust everything that, that you get, even if it seems like a PO at the end of the month. Yeah, so, it goes back to empowering your employees as well. So I think that's a good point. We have to question, we have to empower employees. That that purchase order you, you're receiving uh, in the financial world, we call that a business email compromise. And and, and that's uh, you know probably the number one external fraud threat uh, that you're going to face, but it's enabled by these unintentional insiders in your company. So uh, one, you have to train the, the, the staff, the accounts payable staff, what does this look like? But you have to have the authority to question that because oftentimes those are accompanied by, well, if you don't make the payment, we're going to assess you a late fee, a penalty, we're going to cancel your contract. And you have that person who's, who's you know, they're, they're decently paid, but they're not, they're not well off. They're like, gosh, I don't want to be responsible for, for ruining this relationship, incurring a late fee. I need my job. I don't want to get fired. Let me go ahead and make this payment. So not only questioning, but also reporting. And I think that's one of the other aspects is that not only when you see these phishing emails, should you, um, 
look at this and question not just delete it but your organization needs to have a mechanism to report this over to the IT staff like you were talking about so they can can remove this from the inboxes of folks who may not have that questioning mindset and going back again to my government days another thing that we look at is, is not just questioning and reporting um uh, the, uh, the the fraud, all of the fraud contacts in your organization and, and all the insider threat folks in your organization will say that the, the number one way of catching insider threats in your organization is the reporting. Uh, and you have to have a culture of, of reporting in the organization. Going back and looking at, at spies like Aldrich Ames, he did a lot of damage to, to the government um, and, and he went undetected for a long time, and he was a you know he was an instructor at the CIA's farm, and was was training future spies, but was also selling them out. But it wasn't until someone came and actually looked at his his drapes, and and recognized that gosh, these drapes are thousands of dollars. There's no way that this guy's GS fourteen or fifteen would would be able to afford this. They actually reported him, and were able to then catch catch that spy. Interesting. Uh, I'd like to, to shift focus a little bit and talk about artificial intelligence and how you how you perceive AI kind of having an impact on cybersecurity, right? So there's there's two aspects of it. There's the threat actors use of, of AI, but then there's also the countermeasures that are kind of powered by AI. Mm -hmm. how, how do you see AI having an impact on cybersecurity? Well, I mean, I think people in cybersecurity have been using AI longer than I think a lot of the population has has known about artificial intelligence. So we, you know, anybody who's been in the cyber world for a decade, we've seen kind of the emergence of AI, particularly as it relates to endpoint detection or response. There's a host of companies out there that are using it. There's a host of companies that are doing it at the perimeters and the firewall level as well. Um, so th that is a good use of, of that technology. Um, and, and then, you know, AI is obviously a broad set. You have AI in general and machine learning and then deep learning. So there's all there's a myriad of stuff that encompasses AI in and of itself. Um, a lot of what we're seeing, I think, is, is scaremongering. It's people who've watched uh, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I think Hal's going to take over. Uh, the, the the nuclear weapons, or we've seen Terminator, and, and you know, not that we shouldn't necessarily question what it's doing, um, but I think a lot of the the hype the hype curve of this is kind of overblown. I do think it is a good use of technology. We have to use it smartly. We have to understand what it's doing. I think a lot of the issue with AI is that a lot of what it's a lot of the outputs are black box. They're they're not necessarily Bayesian logarithms that you can follow along with some type of mathematical concept. You, you, it's doing something. We, we kind of have an idea of what it's doing, but we don't know why it's deriving certain conclusions. But we do see that it's coming to relatively a good understanding of what we've asked it to do. But when we start reusing code and we start asking AI to do certain things that maybe it wasn't initially intended to do, but now we're asking it to do something different and it comes out with some crazy result, oh, okay, well, yes, you should expect that because that's not what it was intended to do and we're using it for, for that purpose. So I do see AI as a good tool. Hackers, obviously, there's hack G GPT now. They're using it for some nefarious things. I have played around with it, even just as far as early this year. Uh, Chat GPT, it didn't code very well in Python. It's gotten a little bit better. Uh, it didn't do math very well. I've asked it to do some very simple math problems. I, th I think it had problems doing subtraction and, and, and uh, division. So, yeah, it's a, it's a decent tool, but it's not going to be the end-all, be-all, uh, I think, that some people make it out to be. No, I appreciate that. I did want to end on on a note and ask your opinion about that new SEC rule that uh, is requiring companies to uh, reveal cyber attacks within about four days. Right? Yeah. The stated purpose of this SEC rule is to protect investors. Right. Um, but with with the experience you've had in forensic investigations and and that my teams have had in forensic investigations, 
four days seems like a very short amount of time to do root cause analysis, to actually figure out what, what the attack uh, impact is. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on, on that rule and, and how it's going to be a game changer for how quickly companies have to uh, report these attacks? Yeah, first and foremost, I mean, it's it's an SEC rule. So right now, it, it, when it when it comes to fruition, you know, you're going to have to follow it. Um, and, and essentially, you need to get your legal counsel involved because, you know, it, it is a legal process, first and foremost, but you also have to have your cyber folks involved. Uh, looking at the SEC rule, it also says a material breach. So the the because because that's a legal word, you're going to have to figure out what the word material means. So it's not just a cyber process. So one, yes, go out, follow the law. Two, get your cyber folks involved. And, and let, you know, we're our, our job is to is, is the same thing we've always done. Let's go investigate. Let's find the cause of the breach. Let's go through the incident response process. Let's do all of those things. Let the legal folks worry about the legal things. I'm not a lawyer. I can't give legal advice. That being said, when we look at maybe some of the material impacts, okay, now I'm having to notify the government about a potential breach that I'm still investigating. I may not have had time to patch or mitigate some of the things that I'm still trying to figure out. Is there a potential risk there? Yeah, there, there could be. Because now I'm, I'm notifying someone outside of my organization about a breach and I still don't maybe know how, why, what happened. Other people could then say, ah, Acme Widgets has been hit. Let's start going after them because they're just in the middle of a recovery process. We know that, that, that something bad is happening. So maybe from a, a tactical side of the house, it, it could be um, less than optimal for, for some cyber work. I understand why the government did it. So, you know, I, we're, we're trying to protect investors, but it may have some second and third order effects that, that you know, we don't know about yet. So uh, it, it's important, again, if, if you know, if it's, you find it's not working, if companies are finding that that's not working to, you know, it's a legislative process. Let's get in touch with our legislators and, and provide some input on that. Great. Well, I appreciate the comment. What one last thought? I mean, there there seems to always be this shortage of resources, skilled resources in cybersecurity. The number varies depending upon what trade rags you read. Right. You know, the hundred thousands to the millions. Um, what are your thoughts on on how you crack into cyber and? There's, it's it's always that catch-22. People want to hire folks with experience, but you don't get experience until you actually get a job in the industry. Yeah. So how do we how do we make up that delta of resources that seem to be always lacking in cybersecurity? Yeah, and I mean, experience comes from different things. So, you know, education, first and foremost, you have to know... Um, you have to know what you're doing now. Could, does that mean everybody has to go to college? No. Does everybody have to have a CISSP? No. That you know, some of those those were the routes that I took, but just because I'm a glutton for punishment and I like doing some of those things. My daughter, she's 16, almost 17 years old now. She absolutely hates and detests going to school. I have to be on her all the time. She likes cybersecurity, so I've enrolled her in as many cyber things in her high school now as we can. So she just finished a complete cyber curriculum they have. She's doing coding this year. Uh, I think we've determined that she probably, the four-year university is just not going to be for her. There's a great community college, I, uh, uh, NOVA Community College. They have an Associates of Applied Science uh, she's looking at doing that cyber curriculum, cyber program there to get that training, and then also maybe looking at internships and things along the way. So there, there, there is a a path for her, even someone who doesn't like college. That you know, maybe it might be an option for her in the future. Um, but I, I, I do think too that we can't just look at college as a way like, oh, well, you don't have a four year degree, you're not qualified to do cyber. There are lots of folks out there that do not have any college, do not have any cybersecurity certifications whatsoever. And 
and they still can pick up something and they're still valuable uh, in this process and could ultimately be a really good cyber person. So we can't necessarily discount those folks either. Uh, within, you know, if your company is big enough that you can afford to have some of your own internal training, um, that might be a method to go to build your own. Yeah. Uh, okay, we, you know the business, that may be more important than knowing cyber. Let's, let's grow our own and develop what we need uh, mm -hmm. along that process. So that could be skills, that could be maybe we're going to pay for college for you, maybe we do our own thing. So there's a million ways to get there. You don't have to, to have degrees and certs. It helps. Um, but like, you know, just getting folks to that stage and companies identifying that need. And if the, if the school system isn't providing it to you, then you have to find it some other way. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I, I was just, you, you made me remember a conversation I was having uh, two weeks ago with uh, a retired admiral uh, in the Navy who is... Uh, helping this nonprofit organization um, with uh, children on the spectrum um, mm -hmm. of autism, um, you know, high functioning autism and getting them trained in cybersecurity because of their proclivity toward um, being able to analyze it data at, at rapid paces, um, you know, repetitive functions and mm -hmm. focus and, and, um, and getting them to have a career path as a SOC analyst or uh, being able to train them in these cybersecurity areas um, so that they can um, have a career and, and be able to, to continue to prove themselves. And, and we were talking about this and I thought, here's one way where we can introduce uh, more individuals into this uh, industry that seems to be lacking resources overall. So I appreciate the comments that, that you just made. Um, Max, thank you very much. I think we've come to the, to the end of our time um, and, and I appreciate all the comments and, and the conversation here. Uh, that's all for this episode. Make sure you tune in next time to Logically Speaking and stay cyber first and future ready.